Hi, it's Keith here. Before we head into the lounge proper, I want to take a second to thank you for tuning in. It's a real dream come true for me to create a podcast where I can share the talents of some of my favorite people in the world, and I'm grateful you stopped by to take it all in. If you've been enjoying what you hear, I want to invite you to help us keep it going with a small donation. If you head to livefromtheloungepodcast.com and hit the donate button, you can be sure that every penny you share with us will go right back into making this podcast the best it can be. Thanks in advance for your generosity. Hey there. Welcome to the lounge. The weather's so nice, I decided to try being a nudist for the month of April. I never knew this leather stool was quite so cool. Or how quickly things could get quite so sweaty down there. April Fool's. I have started thinking about my beach body, though. I don't know if I'll do anything about it, but it is on my mind these days. Whatever the status of your beach body is, be it clothed or naked, I want to invite you to lounge with me for the next hour or so. We've got stories and songs and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythms of the season. This month's show is about April showers, the unexpected weather events that appear to threaten our garden just as it's starting to take root, but are really setting the stage for future growth if we're willing to roll with the challenges of change. A little later, we'll talk about dancing with the trickster, how we might learn to accept and cooperate with unexpected obstacles in our path rather than waste our energy fighting against them. The Lounge Players present a tale of a woman trying to uncover the source of a mysterious smell in her neighborhood. What she discovers is both highly unusual and strangely familiar. John Ballinger and Double Batch Daddy are really showing off their chops this month. They're going to rock and roll with you, swing you, and touch your heart with a trio of songs featuring some very special guests. And I'll talk with Edgar McGregor, a young man who decided to stop fighting litter bugs and climate reality deniers and start making real change happen right in his own backyard. So, here we are. Spring has sprung our clocks forward an hour, so sunrise in Los Angeles today came at a very civilized 6.26 a.m., and sunset has been pushed back to 7.20. Hope you're making the most of the extra daylight. April is a month that comes in like a fool and exits like a wise old woman, reminding us that caring for our planet is the best way we can care for each other. If you're not careful... April, with its intoxicatingly long afternoons and the sweet smells of its evenings, can lull you into complacency and hit you with a hurricane or a cold snap out of nowhere. April fools indeed. The wise ones among us move our spring dresses and short sleeves to the front of the closet, but always keep a sweater and an umbrella close by. Of all the months of the year... April and its cousin October require the most mindfulness, I think. Our desire to celebrate the arrival of spring or the bounty of the harvest must be tempered by a willingness to change course at the drop of a hat. Because if we aren't paying close attention, it's all too easy to squander everything we've worked for. 
April's at the beginning of the growth cycle, October is at its conclusion, and both are fraught with perilous dangers and thrilling rewards if we're really paying attention. This April is especially tricky, I think. The year of the pandemic has taken its toll on all of us. We've sacrificed so much since last winter. Millions of lives and livelihoods have been lost. We've missed gathering with our family and friends at reunions, book clubs, banquets, and worship. We've missed gathering with strangers at restaurants and sporting events and theaters. Students have been stuck in their rooms instead of heading out to prom, homecoming, and graduation. Our elders have been denied the company of their children and grandkids. As this year of lockdown appears to be coming to an end, I know it's not quite time to rush back into life as it used to be, as much as the recent shot in my arm makes me feel like I should. You need to be mindful for just a little bit longer. You need to be watchful for the storms on the horizon and be ready to respond if they should appear. But I'd be lying if I didn't confess that I'm looking forward to baseball games and camping with friends and family on the beach and in the mountains. I'm starting to look at tickets for music festivals. I'm dreaming of beer gardens. I'm planning on floating on an alpine lake and hiking to a mountain peak, inviting friends inside for coffee or a cocktail, of being able to bring this show to you live, in person to share food and songs and movies in the same room with you. May not be time to do all those things just yet, but I'm definitely looking forward to them. And I'm spending a lot of time thinking about those things we used to do. Every night I sit here by my window Window Staring at the lonely avenue Avenue Watching lovers holding hands Thinking about things Like a walk in the park things. Like a kiss in the dark things. Like a sailboat ride What about the night we cry? Things, things. like lovers vow things. things we don't do now Thinking about those things we used to do Talking about things Like a walk in the park things. Like a kiss in the dark things. Like a sailboat ride And what, what about, about the night we cried on things Like lovers about things That we don't do now Thinking about those things we used to do I can hear the jukebox softly playing And the face I see each day belongs to Thinking about things Like a walk in the park things. Like a kiss in the dark things. Like a sailboat ride What about the night we cried Things, things. Like lovers foul things. things 
thinking about those things we used to do. You got me thinking about those things we used to do. You got me thinking about those things we used to do. Thinking about those things. Thinking about those things. Thinking about those things we used to do. The following events took place in an unassuming suburban neighborhood not long ago. Last week, actually. A woman began to notice something strange in the air. A troubling odor accompanied by an unusual sound that echoed through the freshly paved streets and the well-manicured lawns. She canvassed the neighborhood door-to-door in an effort to solve the growing mystery. Can I help you? Hi, I'm your neighbor from a block over. What's up? Okay. Sorry to bother you, but I'm wondering if you're noticing a smell. A smell? Yes, a smell and a sound. A sound, too. I hear this beeping, and then there's this terrible... Nope. No? Nope. Haven't noticed anything unusual. Of course, I'm usually pretty busy working from home, so... All right. Well, thanks. No problem. Wait. What? That. I'm sorry? That. That's the sound. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, that's just my machine. Your... Yeah, yeah. You want to see it? You know what? For some strange reason, I kind of do. It's in my backyard, right this way. Wow, that is a big machine. I know, right? What on earth does it do? That's a great question. Just a second. Let me just turn this faucet here. (sighs) Whoa, is that a fire hose? Not exactly. And you're just shooting it into the sky? You bet. Why? So what this machine does is it takes waste and extracts a very valuable substance from it, which I sell on the internet and hopefully soon at Circle K convenience stores. Wow. What is the substance? Well, it has many uses. You can cook with it. You can use it as a a kind of lighter fluid, I guess. But mostly it's an ointment. Huh. What's it called? It's called elbow grease. Elbow grease. Because, like, it works hard to to give you... uh, Excuse me. And this product is derived from... from waste? That's right. Like, what kind of waste? Uh, well, I... uh, hmm, I guess you could say, like, uh, mammalian? uh, You mean like... Biological waste? Are we talking poop? Yes. Where is the poop coming from? You see that bin right over there? Oh, I thought that was another house. (laughs) Anyway, it's about 85% full right now. Is all of that biological waste coming from your household? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean a little bit, but not uh, that whole... (laughs) So where does it come from? Well, what I do is late at night, I go out into the neighborhood and I pick up, you know, waste from various lawns and parks and sidewalks and public facilities. Huh. And I shove them into that large bin, which connects to a pipe that goes under this deck that we're standing on, and it connects to this machine over here, which extracts the key elements that are utilized in my product. Elbow grease. And then when it reaches its capacity, you hear a beeping. Right on cue. 
And this means that the remnants of the process are ready to be released. So I simply take my hose implement and I aim it into the air like so. Uh-huh. I turn the faucet like this and then... <laughs> there you have it! Okay, wow. Like, this solves so many mysteries. Really? How so? Okay, well, I'm looking at these particles of, you know, blasting up into the sky, and I'm seeing the wind direction, and I'm thinking, you know, my house is in that direction. Uh Actually, a lot of houses. Mm. And apartments. And businesses. And playgrounds. Uh So the smell, the dead plants, the strange spots on our windows, and our cars, and our clothing... Oh, you think my machine is causing Uh, sir, you're going to need to turn off your machine. But, I mean, this is my business. Uh, I understand that, but... You're not suggesting that we eliminate my business, are you? Well, I... Because, like, that would be very disruptive to my life. Yes, I could understand that. But do you see that it's also very disruptive to the lives of your neighbors? Uh their health, the health of their pets, the neighborhood flora. What? I mean, how certain are you that it's my business that's the cause? I am actually beyond certain. Because? I actually know. Because? I am aware of the reality, the truth, that the fire hose of waste that you're shooting into the air... What about my customers? What about them? Well, don't they have the right to buy elbow grease? Not at the expense of my health and my home. Knock, knock. Come on in. Hi, I'm Rick Baker. I'm your city financial services director. Hello. I was just walking down your street and I couldn't help but overhear your conversation. Wow, you have extraordinary hearing. Do you like children? I like some of them. Do you want to deprive children of a good education? No. Do you know the high school up over that way? Uh Uh-huh. Have you seen the uniforms of their marching band? I have not. They're an embarrassment. Horrible. They need new uniforms. Do you want to help them get new uniforms? I mean, if... Then we need to do all that we can to support this small business. Yeah, but... The more his business thrives, the more jobs we can create for our community. The more money that flows into our economy and the... Yes, but there is a cost to me and to my neighbors who did not opt in on this. And to every creature downwind of this fire hose. And that cost is going to continue to grow into the future. If only we could... Hello, I'm Dr. Monica Davenport, and I've teleported here from 100 years in the future. Did you overhear our conversation? Ma'am, that is a complicated question. Men, you must heed the warnings of this woman. You are focusing on present profits at the expense of future calamity. Luckily, my patented wormhole defibrillator will allow you to see this firsthand. Let us join our hands in a circle. Um... Okay. Hold tight. Oh my god. What is this festering swamp desert? Where are we? Sir, we are on the site of your former home. 100 years in the future. What is that skyscraper thing over there? The ruins of the corporate headquarters for elbow grease industries. 
This neighborhood became uninhabitable for humans approximately 50 years ago due to high concentrations of toxic waste remnants in the air, water, and soil. A new species has emerged to rule this land. Trespassers! Help! Stay where you are! Oh my god. Whoa. Bezdak, Malkor, it is I, Dr. Monica Davenport. These are my friends. Dr. Davenport, you are a trusted friend. You guys are giant bugs. This term is highly offensive to us, but we will allow it. It is true that we have evolved from creatures you knew as insects. We thrive in this festering swamp desert filled with pungent odors. Uh, on this dying planet, we are forming the framework for a new society. I see you have a marching band. Affirmative. Nice uniforms. Excuse me, I, I can't help but notice that my skin is starting to peel off of my... Yes, yes, you can only afford limited exposure to this climate. Grab my hands and hold on! <laughs> <sighs> Any questions before I go? Yes. Could we please gain access to your time-traveling technology? It would be enormously helpful to us in understanding the long-term environmental ramifications of... No. Okay. Is it because you're worried about damaging the space-time continuum? No. It's because you don't need a time machine. You have scientists who have been analyzing and sharing data over and over and over again for 170 years now. Listen to them! And good luck. I get what she's saying, but the insect warlords were kind of a new wrinkle. All right, well, I'm going to head out to the office. Nice meeting you both. Bye. See you around. So, what do you think? Uh, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's food for thought. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to checking out some more data. Okay. Well, maybe in a couple of weeks we can talk again? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And with that, she walked home. To be honest, she was a bit frustrated. She really thought that traveling to the future to see the swamp desert and insect mutants firsthand would be enough to sway him to consider a more just and sustainable business plan. Too bad. The red, decaying leaves of the neighborhood glistened in the twilight as the toxic remnants nestled in her lungs. She stepped onto her porch and closed the speckled door behind her to rest and fight another day. With so many of us working from home, now is a great time to adopt a pet from L.A. Animal Services. With six animal service centers throughout the city, L.A. Animal Services has dogs, cats, rabbits, hamsters, turtles, guinea pigs, chickens, and more available for adoption and ready to join your family. If you're not ready for that kind of commitment, consider fostering a cat or a dog for a couple weeks. There are huge benefits for the animals. Studies show that time in a house is a huge stress reliever for animals. Plus, you'll be able to get great networking photos and videos of your furry house guests during their stay. And when you go out to run errands or take walks, they'll be exposed to a whole new neighborhood of potential families. 
If you're lucky enough to already have a pet, LA Animal Services has lots of benefits for you and your furry friends. All city residents are eligible for multiple vouchers for free or low-cost spay and neuter services, and every month there are virtual advice sessions to help families with their questions. Doggy dialogues, cat chats, and rabbit roundtables. And if you need assistance feeding your animal companion, you can make an appointment for the Pet Food Pantry in Van Nuys or South Los Angeles every Sunday from 1 to 4. To see adoptable pets, to make appointments for services, go to laanimalservices.com or call 888-452-7381. I grew up on TV in the 1970s. Saturday mornings were a special time back then, for that was the time that the TV networks reserved exclusively for kids. We had the Bugs Bunny Road Runner Hour, Fat Albert, Hong Kong Fooey, Super Friends, and eventually the wonderfully subversive Pee Wee's Playhouse. In between the cartoons and Hot Wheels commercials, we also watched In the News, a kid friendly wrap up of the week's top stories, and Schoolhouse Rock, where we learned multiplication, grammar, and the preamble to the Constitution. We also watched public service announcements that told us not to be litter bugs. One featured the chief of an indigenous tribe coming out of the woods onto the edge of a freeway. He watches a car drive by and throw a bag of trash out the window. The camera cuts to a close-up of the tribal chief's face as a solitary tear runs down his cheek. That's how I learned not to be a litter bug, but I'm not so sure everyone got the message. Still a lot of litter on the roads. My guest today decided to do something about it. His name is Edgar McGregor, and he's given up on trying to convince people not to litter. He's done much better than that. Here's his story. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Edgar. You are a young man. How old are you? Well, I'm 20 years old. I'm from Los Angeles, California. And uh, beginning in May 2019, I uh, really took notice at the level of trash that was in some of my local hiking trails uh, and parks. And so, uh, as I said, beginning in May 2019, I started going out every single day and picking up trash, no matter if I'd just gotten off a 12-hour shift in a warehouse, no matter if it was 105 degrees outside, it didn't matter. I was out there every day picking up. And this was a, a specific trail uh, the Eaton Canyon Trail, is that correct? Yes, Eaton Canyon is one of Los Angeles' most popular hiking trails. Uh, part of why is it is relatively flat. It doesn't really go uphill too much. And so a lot of uh, hikers that aren't too serious about hiking like to come here. In addition to that, we have a waterfall uh, that is flowing year round. And it's one of the only waterfalls that flows year round in Los Angeles. And so when people want to go see waterfalls and uh, later in the summer months after it hasn't rained for a long time, they can still come out to Eaton Canyon and see the waterfall. And so for that reason, we have a lot of litter out here in Eaton Canyon. How long is the trail? I think it's about two and a half miles. So five miles there and back. Um, there are a lot of side trails that crisscross the park. There's several different entrances. Eaton Canyon itself is connected to a very large network of trails. There's over a thousand square miles of area uh, within Los Angeles County. And so really there's no like other side of my park. It's just, you know, how far I typically clean up. When did you first notice the trash and litter uh, at Eaton Canyon? Well, I 
I've done a number of cleanups throughout my, you know, when I was a teenager, I'd go out with a bag of trash on Earth Day or whatnot and clean up a little bit. And that was all good and fun. Uh, however, when I was uh, doing climate strikes alongside uh, Greta Thunberg and thousands of other youth worldwide in spring of 2019, I really felt like there was something more I could be doing. And so uh, beginning that spring, I started going out to my local park every Saturday and I'd go and clean up trash. But as I was cleaning up, I noticed I was doing the same areas over and over again. The trash would rebuild throughout the week and I'd just be cleaning it up again uh, the next Saturday. And if I really wanted to clean up the park, I knew I had to go out there every single day instead. Can you tell us a little bit about what a climate strike is? Well, it's basically just uh, people going out to a local institution, whether it is a school, a courthouse, a capital of your city or state or country and uh, trying to get politicians to understand that we are in a climate emergency and they need to take it seriously not just say that it's a serious problem but they need to actually act on it because they're the ones that can make the biggest changes so what made you decide to get going on eaton canyon and stick with it day in day out for as long as you did well that's the magic of having two buckets i don't go out with plastic bags at all I go out with five gallon buckets of trash. I was kind of using the, you know, the phrase like uh, leave wanting more. I was kind of using that to my advantage. And, I, and while I could have gotten all that trash, it, I would have tired me out more frequently and I wouldn't know where any trash was after that. And so by, you know, kind of limiting myself to a certain amount of trash per day, I was able to push myself day after day after day on getting all the trash out of the park. I mean, stuff that is really obscure and really difficult to get to places where I don't think any human has walked in, you know, decades. Well, we know the I, humans were there because well, we know, they left yeah, their or, trash. <laughs> or they weren't there and they threw their trash off the side of a cliff and I have to go underneath that cliff where it's really hard to get to and clean up. All the trash that was out in the boonies had been sitting out there for years or decades. Some trash I can confirm that was littered in the either late 1960s or very early 1970s. Another thing is when I, uh, when I was working full time, there would only be a certain amount of time I could go out and clean up on some days. You know, if I had two hours to go and pick up, I'd go to a location that was I knew would take me about two hours to clean up. And if I had five minutes to clean up, I'd go right to the side of the parking lot and clean up there. I, I really planned out my cleanups. I didn't just generally clean up. I targeted specific areas in my park and I checked everything, every single bush, every single area. And nowadays, I wander around that place and I have very difficult time finding even a couple items. That's incredible. How many days did you go into Eaton Canyon Park and come out with two buckets of trash? Half the time I was doing one bucket, other half the time I was doing two buckets. Currently, I'm on day 613. It's not always in Eaton Canyon because I can't always do it in the same spot, but most of the time it is. And sometimes, like you said before, that's 10 minutes. Sometimes that's a couple hours. But every single day, you're faithfully out there. Right. Um, do you have any sense of how much trash you've taken out of Eaton Canyon since you started? It's really difficult for me to tell. I've I've brought my buckets inside and like put them on a uh, on a you know on a um, what are they called? A scale? Kind of scale, yeah. And the heavy ones are usually about 15 pounds. The lighter ones are usually around five pounds. And so the average is 10. And so if I'm doing about 20 pounds per day, every single day for 600 days, uh, it, it would come out to around 10 to 12,000 pounds of trash that I've collected in my park. That's really just a rough estimate. Honestly, sure. it's really hard to tell. Sure. I wonder what was it like 
your first day in the canyon. How did how did you feel? Was it overwhelming? Was it a thrill? I mean, that first time you went out there with a bucket and started to fill it up, what was it like for you? It more felt like it was something I needed to do. It didn't feel uh, too exciting. It was more like I need to do this. And uh, definitely the first week, there were some days where I just straight up didn't want to go. You know, I, I would wait until the end of the day because I just didn't want to go. I'd lazily put on my shoes and get grab my bucket and go out and clean up for 10, 15 minutes. And it wasn't something I totally fell in love with. It took a while. But nowadays, I love going out to my local park. It is a blast. I think about it first thing when I wake up. Where am I going to go hike today? What am I going to do? What am I going to find? How much recycling am I going to get? You know, it's, and it's always so exciting. And part of it is because my park is so uh, beautiful. It really, um, you know, it looks like a little part of Zion National Park, honestly. Uh, and so I definitely have fallen in love with my park, especially now that so many people are paying attention to what I'm doing. And I'm inspiring people around the world to do this as well. I was going to ask you, what was it like when you finished? But I know it's an ongoing. That is a catastrophic mistake that a lot of park services make when they do cleanups. I can go online right now and type in San Gabriel River East Fork uh, trash situation. And the first article will be, you know, East Fork of the San Gabriel River gets a green, you know, good bill of health trash wise. Well, I've been out to that park uh, in recent weeks, in recent days, actually, and checked out the trash situation that is supposedly in good health. It is a catastrophe. And I'm talking piles of uncollected trash sitting in the National Forest. The Andes National Forest estimates that 50, 50, 45-gallon bags of trash appear in the park every single day. It is really really bad. I mean, this is Los Angeles's backyard. And I look online and it says that everything is in good shape. It is totally not. And so what I really want to stress to park services is that when you clean up a park, you can't stop and be done and say, okay, bye. You got to stay. You got to maintain that cleanliness. You need to keep sending people out all the time and making sure no new trash appears. Thank you for that. I think that's really, really an important. This is one of those things that I think that God bless you and everybody else and the Boy Scout troops that go out there. Everybody oh, yeah. goes oh, yeah. out there and picks up stuff, of course. But we've got to do our part. I mean, I think it's just a, it's a consciousness raising that needs to happen with the people who bring their stuff to the park that you've got to be prepared to take it back out of the park. Unfortunately, that's never going to happen. And the reason one of the lessons I learned on this mission is that people are just going to litter and there's nothing I can do to stop them. I've had people litter right next to trash cans. I have people litter right in front of me as I'm picking up and I've after I've made eye contact with them and they can see that I'm picking up. I've had people litter in front of the no littering $1,000 fine sign. Expecting people to not litter has been a solution that has not worked. The trash crisis is worse than it has ever been. What we need to do is we need to fund our park services to hire crews to work 50 weeks a year, 40-hour weeks to clean these places up. Not seasonal workers. We need crews with trucks, four-man crews going out and picking up every single day. Depending on people to pack out their trash is not working. It would be great if they did that, but they are just not going to. And if I'm going to be out there every single day picking up trash, 
I need to be enjoying my time. I cannot be stressing out about litter bugs. I cannot be getting confused by them, getting angry about at them. I can't be, uh, you know, getting all depressed. I have to enjoy my time out there. And I can only do that if I completely ignore the litter bugs, ignore their motives, understand that I'm never going to get an answer to the question, why would someone do this? And just go out there and pick up. Was that the most challenging part doing the work? No. What was the hardest part for you and how did you cope? Uh, having to shave every day. <laughs> that didn't happen at the beginning. I was ni- I was I just turned 19 years old when I started this. Yes. I was shaving about th- maybe t- once or twice a week. Now I've got to shave every single day, or else I have this big scruffy beard on my video, and that's that's annoying because that takes out like 10 minutes of my day. And so that is that is now the hardest part of my cleanups. I tell people if you're gonna litter, leave it on the side of the trail. Don't pitch it off into poison oak or into cacti where I can't get it. Just leave it on the side of the trail and I'll come and get it. Simple as that. I just love that that concept. And that's really what this episode of the podcast is about. That idea of just understanding like people will litter. Mm -hmm. And instead of fighting that, you've accepted the fact that people are going to litter. And not only are you doing something about it personally, but you've also thought about how we can take care of it as a society. In 2017, the youth, the climate change movement was still mired within the, is climate change real or is it fake? And what the youth populations in the climate movement did was we said, you know what? We don't care what you have to say. If you think climate change isn't real, we're not going to reply to you. We're not going to like your co- tweets. We're not going to retweet them and like, uh, you know, bash you or anything. We're just going to shit up, ignore you. We're running out of time to solve this crisis and we need to get to work now. And that decimated the climate deniers. And now we can actually have the critical conversations that we need to have. So you're a young man. How old are you now? I'm 20 years old. What's next for you? Where Where are you headed? What's your future look like? Well, I need to continue to maintain the cleanliness in my park because there are going to be new litter bugs. Here in the next few days, even, my park is going to end the reservation systems because of COVID, because of those tens of thousands of people that flooded my park on Memorial Day 2020. uh, My park has been on a reservation system, and so only a number of people can get in. This reservation system is going to end soon, and thousands of people are going to start flooding my park again every single day. We see about 600,000 visitors per day, and that's before the pandemic. During the pandemic, it's a lot higher, except for during the reservation system. And so, you know, I'm going to have to go back to my park a lot more frequently now. Uh, Other than that, I'm going to be transferring to San Jose State University in the Bay Area this autumn. I'm going to be getting a degree in meteorology with an emphasis in climatology. It's been my lifelong passion to study the weather and study climate. I get a kick out of when there's a windstorm coming out of these foothills. Uh, And so, um, yeah, that's a lot of fun. But I'm going to be finding a new park up in the Bay Area to clean up in every single day. And I've been looking at map, like Google Maps around the San Jose uh, State University area, and I've got a few in my Mind, but I haven't actually been up there yet. And so uh, I need to drive around and check that out. There's a freedom to act that comes when we stop trying to fight unwinnable battles. Young Edgar McGregor has cracked that code by accepting the fact that people litter and using his energy to get out every day to clean up after them. As Earth Day approaches, I hope you'll make a commitment with me to dream up ways we can act to create a new climate reality, one that increases the possibility of restoring the blue-green hills of Earth. For the Earth, for everyone.
ever turning for the skies for every sea for our lives for all we cherish sing we are joyful songs of peace for the Welcome back to the dinner and a movie segment here at Live from the Lounge. I am joined today by my beautiful and talented wife, Anne Claus Farley. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'll take both those compliments. We are going to uh, talk about a baseball movie, and we're going to talk about some baseball food because it is baseball season. And the movie we ended up settling on after looking and considering many. We had League of Their Own, which we watched this week, found it to be sort of a weird time capsule of the early 90s. And as much as it was trying to be a um, 
feminist movie. Feminist movie. It's sort of misfired in a few major ways. It's just trapped in its time capsule. That's all. But you get to see Tom Hanks play an angry drunk. Gina Davis is amazing as Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna. And everybody's in the movie to contribute. It's a star-studded cast. And the movie's okay. It's not as great as I remember it. It just asks more questions about why there isn't more women in baseball. And why aren't we doing some gender inclusion in professional sports? Indeed. Uh, We also looked at Field of Dreams, The Natural, of course, The Pride of the Yankees, the great Lou Gehrig story. Great movie. But given the time that we're living in today, we felt it was important to focus on... Jackie Robinson. Number 42, Jackie Robinson. Not only is the anniversary, April 15th, of the first day that he played uh, in Major League Baseball is coming up. It's Jackie Robinson Day, where everyone in a Major League Baseball wears number 42. So you can't tell anybody apart. And also because of Chadwick Boseman's recent passing, to see him in his early career here, and then how much we both adored Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which we can't recommend enough. I mean, he's just an amazing actor and was perfect in, in all that he had done in such a short amount of time. But here we are, 75 years later, after the introduction of an African-American baseball player trying to break the color barriers, and yet... How far have we really come? It's a good question. And it's also a, a movie about partnership and, and two, two people, um, Ranch, Ricky, who partnered with Jackie Robinson in really having a beginning conversation about diversity in sports, diversity in humanity, and in the American legacy. And what does that look like? 42, uh, a wonderful movie that still touches on things that 75 years later America is still struggling with. Yeah, yeah. So, Anne, I thought I would just let you talk a little bit about 42. It's not a perfect movie. It's a definitely a Hollywood-style formula movie, but you can't really deny the performances of this movie and and the facts of this movie. I've learned, through, you know, about Jackie through movies like Ken Burns' um, Baseball, and he also does a two-part series of Jackie Robinson, which we saw, um, and which really highlights Jackie. Chadwick takes this performance into what Chadwick does beautifully, which is um, humanizes the experience of having the burden of an entire cultural shift on your back. And he is matched with Harrison Ford, who... Yeah, we don't often get to see Harrison Ford as a character actor. Yeah. He's just, you know, Harrison Ford. Yeah. But here he is, putting on a voice, wearing a fat pad, and and chewing a cigar. And so honest. And what he does also is, you know, Branch Rickey also becomes a brave man to say, I need to change not only baseball, but the hearts of all humans in America. They're both activists and they're both churchmen and family men. And they decide together that they are going to change something huge, which is a conversation, change the conversation in America. Nicole Bahari, who plays uh, Jackie Robinson's wife in the movie, I think she's the soul of this movie. Well, she's in partnership. And, you know, when you watch her performance, you also talk about the women who are absent in baseball. And and for me, match that with a league of your own. I was like, you know, women and men in sports together, you could bring more people to the table, which is a question at the end of the movie, which is like, why aren't we doing it? Let's talk a little bit about uh, Alan Tudyk, who I know you've worked with and who plays a really central character, Philly's general manager, uh, Ben Chapman. 
I Googled a lot of interviews that he did about this part and having to play a racist heart and how difficult that was for him as an actor. It's a performance that really takes to where we are right now in our political climate and our cultural climate. It's painful and but necessary to watch. And the beauty of it is that he is he is not allowed to fight back because they understand that the moment he fights back against this racism that's rampant, that he loses, particularly in the scene with um, Ben Chapman, where he comes out of the dugout, stands on the field and just hurls racial slurs at Jackie Robinson. And he just has to stand there and take it is such a poignant scene. And what ends up happening is baseball is transformed and Ben Chapman is fired. He ends up losing that fight and losing big. So while Robinson has to overcome these obstacles to being able to play in the major league, the fans of major league baseball also have to overcome the stumbling block that's put in their way, which is the first time seeing a black man play baseball. And the beauty of this movie is that both are transformed over the course of it. It's just a a terrific yeah. movie, a really great sort of old school Hollywood, big hearted piece. Yeah. We're just celebrating a hero or heroes in this case, many heroes um, in a really, really grand and spectacular way. It's yeah. a great movie. It's hard for me to hear sometimes when you go, oh, someone wins someone over. And I don't know if that's true, if it's more that. Jackie Robinson educated people with the truth, and he did it after he played baseball, too. It's his truth and the belief in the truth that carried him through. And the truth, you know, as as MLK says, you know, will set you free. And and that's what he was. He was he was he epitomized the truth. He just carried with him the truth of what he believed in all the way through his life. And I find that people like him do pave the way for the future. 42 is available on HBO Max. Uh, You can catch it there. Uh, And to pair this movie with food, the obvious choice is to go with the Dodger dog. But really, that's just a foot-long Farmer John Frank on a white bun, and it's really nothing to it. So we had to look a little further afield uh, and um, decided that we might pair it with the dog they serve in the stadium. But it's a dog that is served on the streets outside of the stadium, it's the danger dog. And if you ask why is it called the danger dog, I think um, I have to answer that question with a question, which is how do you feel about eating bacon that's been sitting out in the hot sun for four or five hours? It's bacon. And it literally is like you've died and gone to heaven because you just it's undeniable. You you don't want it, but you want it. It's a struggle. I should tell you what it is. The Danger oh. Dog is a bacon-wrapped hot dog uh, grilled, uh, topped with grilled peppers and onions, frequently a jalapeno pepper, mm. and then it's mustard and ketchup and mayonnaise. It is a feast. Uh, and, and it's street food. It's cooked on um, shopping carts, essentially. It's people who take a um, baking sheet and a pack a sterno and put it under the baking sheet and they wrap these hot dogs in bacon, put them on the sheet and the, the, the peppers and the onions go right alongside. The jalapenos are right on the outside. The buns are down below and they'll make it up for you. When you're coming down that Vin Scully drive and you hear those guys going hot dog, hot dog, hot dog, hot dog, hot dog. And then that smell, like you said, hits you. Uh, it is a real temptation. So 
for our version, we're going to go a little bit upscale. Um, you can go with a big fat hoffy hot dog, which is the, the tradition. You can wrap it in the thinnest bacon you can find. But I prefer at Costco right now, they have these grass fed beef franks that are unbelievable. And you wrap those with bacon, cook them on the grill till that bacon's good and done, or you can bake it in the oven until the bacon is good and done. Grill up some peppers, grill up some onions, maybe a jalapeno or two for the heat, and then top it as you see fit. And then for our friends uh, who are on the keto diet, just put it on a plate. There's so many other alternatives, and you can also do a vegan dog. And, and you know, really, it's just the relishes and the toppings that make it the monster that it is. So, so that's our dinner and a movie for April, <laughs> Jackie Robinson Day, April 15th. Tune into your favorite baseball team and see everybody wearing number 42 so you can't tell one guy from the other. And we paired that with the Danger Dog, which is just a beef hot dog wrapped in bacon, cooked thoroughly, and topped with sautéed peppers, onions, and jalapeno pepper, ketchup, mustard, mayonnaise. Take me out to the ball game. Thanks for being here, Ann. Thanks, honey, for inviting me. Do you love baseball now? I love movie night. <laughs> <laughs> You know Al Gore is the former vice president of the United States, but did you remember that he's also an Oscar winner? The 2006 film An Inconvenient Truth won the Oscar for Best Documentary of 2006. In it, Mr. Gore presented a slideshow that explained the science behind climate change. In the 14 years since his Oscar win, Mr. Gore and his scientific advisors have been constantly updating that slideshow with the most current information on the science, on the insane weather events happening all over the world, but also on the positive changes taking place that give reasons for optimism. Now, what if I told you you could get your very own presentation of this new slideshow by someone personally trained by former Vice President Gore? What if I told you they could present to your club, church, community group, or any other gathering you could think of, small or large? What if I told you they could present it over Zoom and that they'd do it for free? Well, it's all true. And all you have to do to schedule a presentation is email your request to the Los Angeles chapter of the Climate Reality Project at laclimatereality at gmail.com. That's laclimatereality at gmail.com. And to learn more about all the other wonderful work happening in the L.A. chapter of the Climate Reality Project, visit www.laclimatereality.org. April Showers Bring May Flowers is likely the shortest tale of the trickster known to man. The wind and rain of April that cause us such inconvenience and consternation are actually blowing seeds around and watering them where they land. When the sun comes out, the seeds sprout and grow, and it's quite beautiful. One can't happen without the other. The end. I first learned of the trickster from a director of mine at the Texas Shakespeare Festival. I was at 24, a bit too young to be playing Claudius in Hamlet, but there I was, playing the role for not the first, but the second time. And the director came to my room one day, and we had a nice chat about Hamlet and Claudius and the trickster. You'll remember that Claudius is the poisoner-in-chief. He poisons his own brother, the king. 
He then marries the queen, Gertrude, thereby stealing the throne from young Hamlet, the rightful heir. Hamlet keeps coming at Claudius, and Claudius keeps dancing out of the way, giving Hamlet a swift kick in the pants as he sails by. If only Hamlet had learned to dance with the trickster, the director told me, he might have come out all right. I was intrigued by this notion. I asked him to explain. The trickster, it seems, is a character that shows up in stories and myth to block the hero's path. If you fight with him, he'll kill you. But if you dance with him, he'll take you to places you never thought you could go. Hamlet, our hero, is incapable of dancing because in the face of Claudius's trickiness, he sees only two options— to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Until the last moment of the play, Claudius is one step or more ahead of the young Dane, and even then, his plan partly succeeds in that he takes Hamlet out with him. Life is like that, the director told me. When we fight, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, we often end up dead. We need to learn to dance with the trickster and see where they take us. Interesting. A couple of days later, the actress playing Gertrude, Hamlet's mom, decided that in the big fight scene at the end between Hamlet and Laertes, where she takes the poison cup and toasts to Hamlet's good fortune, that she actually knows the cup is poisoned, and that in her act of drinking from it, she's actually knowingly committing suicide, the supreme act of a loving mother with a very guilty conscience. What a load of horseshit. That choice struck me as the rankest form of scene-stealing I'd ever heard of, as if the play should have been called Gertrude, Queen of Denmark, the Loving Mother. After rehearsal, I stormed back to my little dormitory room to fume and rail in private. On the way home, the idea of dancing with this trickster came into my mind. But how could I possibly respond to this affront by dancing with the trickster? Why not give it a try? Okay. Let's accept that Gertrude knows the cup is poisoned. How does she discover this? The only ones who know about the scheme are me, Claudius, and Oric, my right-hand man. We'd never reveal our plan to Gertrude. Unless we did. Secretly. On purpose to get her out of the way, too. After all, little orphan Laertes is totally going to kick fat Hamlet's ass, plus the tip of his sword will be dipped in poison just in case. The third backup plan is the poison cup, but what if it's not for Hamlet at all? What if I planted it as a trap for Gertrude, knowing that the stupid cow, and I'm speaking as Claudius here, would gulp it down to save the kid? Hamlet dies, Gertrude dies, the throne is mine. Holy shit. This choice changed the playing of the scene quite dramatically. Claudius has the next line, following Gertrude's carousing to Hamlet's fortune. He says, The poison cup. 
It is too late. Which I'd always played as if I was panicked to be losing my love. But suddenly, I started playing it with a shrug. As if things were going perfectly according to my master plan. The only thing missing was a Dr. Evil pinky at the corner of my mouth. Every night, the audience would gasp, hate me more, and feel all the more satisfied when Hamlet drained that very cup down my throat a few moments later. Wow, I remember thinking. His dance with the trickster stuff is pretty great. Fast forward to 2001. In the intervening years, I had married a strong and beautiful woman. I'd worked my way up the ladder at an animation company, leading to my becoming a voice director on two popular animated series. My writing partner and I produced a dozen pieces for the independent film channel. We sold a beach blanket movie to VH1, scribbled jokes for award shows, and the musical I'd helped write was voted best off-Broadway musical that year. I had a one-year-old, another kid on the way, My wife and I and our little one had just moved from a tiny apartment to a lovely little house in Pasadena. We hung a swing in the avocado tree out back, planted a bed of peonies out front. We welcomed our second child home to this house. Felt like everything was going our way. And then it all stopped. The animated series stopped recording. Planes hit the Twin Towers in New York, and our off-Broadway hit was forced to close. The IFC show wasn't renewed, the Beach Blanket movie never got made, and I found myself unemployed. In a house that was three times the rent of our old apartment, caring for a small child and a newborn. This went on for three years. We watched our savings dwindle and our credit card debt grow. I started teaching voice acting classes. My wife was working hard designing for the theater, but no matter how hard we worked, we were losing money every month. We accepted food from a local charity so we could have a Thanksgiving dinner. Shortly after that, the landlord raised the rent by 10%. It felt a lot like failure. And increasingly, it started to feel like panic. I tried to fight it. I put on a good face for friends and family, but inside I was at war with an increasing sense of worthlessness. The useless question, why is this happening, ran on an endless loop throughout the day and all night, every night. The struggle to answer that question was sapping my strength and souring my mood. I was stuck, engaged in a battle that I could never possibly win. It was my wife who revealed to me the path I couldn't see. She showed me how to dance with the trickster rather than fight him to death. Kids don't care about the house, she said. They love you and me. And I love you and you love me and we love them. That's all that matters. Well, downsize, big deal. Even if it's to a tiny little one-bedroom apartment, we'll make sure there's a good school in the neighborhood, a park nearby. And most importantly, I... I think we're going to need to make sure the building has a pool. One bedroom, good school, park, pool. Once we decided to accept our financial reality, things moved quickly. 
We were lucky to find a two-bedroom apartment in a great neighborhood with a good school and a park walking distance from our back door and, yes, a pool ten feet from the front. All for about a third less than we were paying for the house. Things eventually turned around for us right about the time our oldest started going to kindergarten and our youngest entered preschool. I'd become so focused on the driving rain and the howling winds of our situation that I didn't see the seeds taking root and being watered all around me. Once I accepted that our relative poverty was giving me the gift of time, I began to appreciate it. My wife and I were able to share the duties of parenting. We were around to take the kids to parks and museums or just spend hours rolling and cutting up Play-Doh. We read books, we laughed, we sang, we danced, we swam. Finances were still tight. Our debt load was still high. Sometimes we were late with the rent, but it always managed to come through somehow. They say kids deserve quality time. I can't say I know what that means, but... I'm grateful for the quantity time I got to spend with our kids when they were little. I wouldn't trade that for anything. The choice to accept the reality of our situation, to roll with it rather than fight it, made all the difference. April showers are part of the season cycle, and they're entirely out of our control. Fact is, in this climate reality, the storms of April are likely to be more intense than ever. The late frost can come later and with more intensity than it ever has before. And the seeds we've just planted can be utterly wiped out. We can't stop the storms. We can't fight the frost. But if we're willing to accept the reality of hurricanes and tornadoes and floods... If we accept the path that we've been blithely treading is now blocked, we might imagine a way to dance ourselves to a new reality. Might choose to ride a bicycle to work, which might lead us to move closer to where we work. It could even lead to a choice to work from home. And if that's an option, where might that lead? The serenity prayer puts this all very simply. We seek the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You can't stop the trickster from showing up on your path, and you can't pretend he isn't there. Denial is deadly. But once you accept that the path is blocked you'll discover you have the freedom to choose how to respond. Fighting is futile. you got to roll with it. See where it leads you. Dancing with the trickster is not an exercise in trying to find a silver lining in a bad situation. It's about accepting the fact that some days there are dark clouds and learning to deal with the rain. The great Dr. Seuss puts it this way. This is from Oh, the Places You'll Go. So be sure when you step. Step with care and great tact and remember that life's a great balancing act. 
Just never forget to be dexterous and deft. And never mix up your right foot with your left.
that's our lounge. You can put your clothes back on and go about your daily business. As always, we invite you to stay in touch with us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'd love to see pictures of you enjoying a danger dog, organizing a trash pickup, or just singing and dancing along with the music you hear. Feel free to share your lounge with us via email at livefromthelounge640 at gmail.com. And if you've got a couple of dollars to share in support of this podcast, we'd welcome that too. Head to livefromthelounge.podcast.com, hit the donate button. We'd welcome anything you're willing to share. Every dollar raised goes right back into bringing this podcast to you each month. Thanks in advance for your generosity. I can't tell you the joy I get reading and listening to the creative output of our team. We're truly blessed to have these folks contributing their time and energy. Here's the who did what. Our lounge is produced by Anne Kloss Farley. John Ballinger is our musical director. His album Blue Room is available for listening on Spotify and for purchase on Amazon.com. Double Batch Daddy is our house band. You heard Cal on vocals and bass, Dutch on vocals and guitar, and Bax on drums. You can see a rollicking collection of their live performances on YouTube. Ruby Farley, our resident culinary cinephile, sat in with John and the band on Things We Used to Do. Check out the many faces of Ruby at rubyfarley.com. Matt and Carol Almos wrote our radio play, Elbow Grease. In it, you heard Hugo Armstrong as him, Tracy Lee as her, and Carol Almos as Dr. Monica Davenport. Edgar McGregor posts pictures and videos to his Twitter account every single day. Keep up with his environmental activism and keep him in the habit of shaving every day by following the Twitter handle at Edgar R. McGregor. That's Edgar R. M-C-G-R-E-G-O-R. And I'm Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with another set of stories, songs, and conversations all intuitively designed to help you to learn, to love, to lounge.